Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. So, uh, keeping in line with the theme, What You Fear You Follow, uh, two weeks ago, uh, you guys completed uh, the fear of God half uh, of the class, if you will. And then last week, uh, you considered how fear of God helps us to follow God uh, in the Christian life. And one of the key ideas there um, was that the things you fear set the course for your life, um, So, for instance, if you're afraid of water, you won't go swimming. Or if you are afraid of being embarrassed, you might stare clear of uh, public speaking. Um, So on and so forth, right? So what we fear sets the course for our lives. And if we fear God, uh, then we will want to please him and live for him, right? So that's kind of where we were, where you guys were last week, Um. Talking about the goal of pursuing restful decision-making rather than anxious decision-making. And a big piece of becoming restful as a decision-maker is by understanding God's sovereignty over our circumstances. How uh, the sovereignty of God as as an element of his character impacts how we make decisions And then also how our responsibility fits into all of that. So that's kind of going to be the theme uh, of our lesson tonight, is that we must remember uh, God's sovereignty um, as we strive to make decisions. So God's sovereignty in decision-making. Right. So let's kick things off with a question. Um, If God were not sovereign... uh, how would that change the way we as Christians make decisions? If God were not sovereign, how would that change the way we make decisions? Be very stressful, yeah? What else? Sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. Making your own decisions. Doing things for you, maybe. What other thoughts? What's that? Yeah, we wouldn't be able to trust God because he may or may not be in control of any given situation. So there'd be a lot of doubt. Yeah? I think you find yourself hopeless. Yeah, sure. Hopelessness. A couple more here. Yeah. 
I think that's interesting because I think it shows that we would try to fill that responsibility for the circumstances of our lives with something else if, if God weren't sovereign. So it, it kind of showcases maybe a need for uh, something else, right? Something more, if that makes sense. Yeah, those, those are really good answers. And we're, and we're kind of setting ourselves up to answer the antithesis of that uh, a little bit later on. Um, but it's kind of interesting to think through the significance that God's sovereignty uh, is in relationship to us making uh, decisions. So the goal of this particular class period is going to be uh, to see the glorious truth of God's sovereignty, um, to see how it's the bedrock for our trust, uh, and to uh, see how it gives us peace in decision-making, right? So we, we can't really even dive into this without first um, understanding what God's sovereignty is um, and see how that relates to decision-making. So we're going to start off by understanding what it means that God is sovereign, and then we're going to move into uh, what God's goal is uh, in using his sovereign power, uh, what he's striving to accomplish. I should maybe say striving, what he will accomplish um, with his sovereign power, and then how that fits in uh, with our responsibility in decision-making. Uh, and then we'll fr- finish with some practical application um, as we have considered uh, who God is and how our responsibility fits in with that. So, what do we mean by God is sovereign? Uh, here's a definition. Uh, all things are under God's rule and control. Nothing happens without his direction or permission. God works not just some things, but all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's just a, a, a general definition, uh, a pretty good definition of what it means when we say God is sovereign. And so as we, as we get started here this evening, we can... With that definition in mind, we can look into some elements that we see from Scripture uh, of God's sovereignty. And the first one is this. God is sovereign over our circumstances. So can I have a volunteer to read Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Now, I must confess, even though I probably have had conversations with most of you, I am horrible at names. So if I mess up your name, or if I just point and say, hey you, please forgive me, and I will learn your name tonight. So, there's my transparency moment with Seth for the evening. All right, can I have a volunteer for Genesis 50? Jennifer. Yeah, I know, I know last names better than I know first names, too. <laughs> Thank you. So Genesis 50, verse 20. Sorry, I messed up. Oh, you're great. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Okay, thank you. 
So God is sovereign over our circumstances, and the verse that we read there is talking about Joseph. And the the context of that is Joseph is being sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, And we see a confession here in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant it for evil, but what? God meant it for good. And we're rather familiar with this story. Um, But what it shows us is that God is in absolute control. Even in the worst of situations, even though it was evil, uh, God intended it for good. And through Joseph's time in Egypt, uh, God saved thousands from starvation, uh, including uh, the chosen family of Israel from which the Messiah would someday come. Every circumstance, uh, even the hard ones, uh, are within the control of a sovereign God. So the next one that we see here is that God is sovereign over our past and our future. So can I have another volunteer read Isaiah 46, 10, Dave? Aha. Right, yeah, so it's, it's not a random string of events, right? It's everything that's happened in your life has been within God's control from, from time past to everything that's going to come in the future. And so that number two there almost flows into number three. So because uh, God is sovereign over our past and our future, um, that means that God is sovereign even over the decisions that we make, that we've made in the past and that we're going to continue to make. So that's number three there. God is sovereign over our decisions. So Psalm 33 uh, says this, The Lord brings the counsel uh, of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Right? And so from that particular passage, we can kind of see that uh, no matter what we decide, uh, the outcome is entirely in the hands of God yet again. Um, It's not always in the negative. God's not always looking out to frustrate our plans. You know, even though our plans might be good, he might still choose to do that. But uh, what we see from that verse is that it, uh, even the plans of man are, the decisions of man are under the control of a sovereign God. Number four. God is sovereign even over our hearts. Can I have someone read Proverbs 21.1? Yes. Witcher. Melissa. Yes, I'm so sorry. I know, I know last names. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being very gracious with me. <laughs> 21.1, 21, yes. So there, there's an argument that's being laid out here in this verse, uh, an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? So uh, if God is sovereign over the hearts of kings, right, so arguably the most important uh, person's heart is the king's, right? He's uh, the most per- predominant figure um, in that kind of a culture, right? That monar- monarchical, no, monarchy type of culture is the king, right? Um, so if, if God even has control over 
the king's heart, how much more does he have control over the common people's heart, right? You and I's heart, because I'm not a king. Um, but even over uh, those who are not even the high um, people of authority, right? It, it, it reminds me of uh, what, what God says about him caring for the sparrows. And, and that's going to come up a little bit later in the lesson as well. But it's that same kind of argumentation. Like, if God cares for the sparrows, how much more does he care for us as human beings? And that's kind of uh, the opposite, right? Kings to us, but now it's sparrows to us. So it, it just shows that God cares for us and is in control of, of even the most important people's hearts. And that is to communicate even our own. And, and, you know, we live in, in an ordered universe that was created by God and is actively governed by God. And now at first that might seem terrifying that we are under the complete control of someone so immensely powerful. Um, you know, it feels quite powerless even to consider uh, that God is so powerful until we remember that his purposes are good. Until we remember the fact that he is the embodiment of what good is, which ultimately will leave us not terrified, but with comfort, peace, and rest. And that rest has a direct impact on how we make decisions. But what exactly is the good that God is pursuing to accomplish with his sovereign power, right? And that leads us right into our next point, um, the fact that God's goal is to glorify himself. Just like a master painter whose canvas is the whole universe, God is sovereignly governed, but, uh, governing every single event down to the most minute of details to bring himself glory. Um, and there's a couple of examples that we find of this in Scripture. And the first is this. He made people for his glory. He made people for his glory. Can I have a volunteer read Isaiah 43.7? Yeah. Marsha. <laughs> We're getting it. Right, so it's pretty clear from that verse that, that God has, has created uh, us as human beings for his glory. Right? And it's the purposes of God... It's God's design for man to see God's glory. Think about the words that we see uh, from the prophet Habakkuk. He says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? So, so to the extent that there is water in the ocean, so too is it originally designed for man to see the glory of God. And I think it's interesting, too, that, that Habakkuk use, uses a, a, a creation illustration uh, it just is reminiscent of the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The creation, the created world, points us and drives us to see um, the glory of the Lord, right? So next, he rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. And the next two are going to be examples from his working with uh, the children of Israel. But we see this in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Anyone willing to read Exodus chapter 9, verse 16? Larry.
Right, again, uh, very clear from Scripture, uh, God's purposes um, to show his power, to show who he is and proclaim it so that everyone can see it. And that's the reason he rescued the people from the mighty nation of Israel, so that his character and his nature would be put on display. And the next one is very, very similar to that one. He rescued Israel from Babylon for his glory in Ezekiel 36.22. I'll go ahead and read this one. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Right, so, so this one, again, is just very, very clear. God is saying, you know, it's not for you that I'm doing this. It's so that people see who I am. It's so that people see my power um, at work among you. Now moving into uh, the a New Testament context, we see that God sent Jesus to earth for his glory. We see that in John 1.14. Can I have someone read John 1.14? Yeah. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks, Rod. Probably one of the more familiar verses from John, uh, talking about the word becoming flesh, the incarnation. Um, And we have seen his glory, and it's glory that points to the glory of the Father, who is full of grace and truth. So that's why Jesus came to earth, so that we could behold his glory and the glory of the one who sent him. And that glory is most perfectly displayed in the gospel. So he saved us for his glory. Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we've been given all these rich blessings in the gospel. We've experienced the glory and majesty and grace of Jesus on the cross, and it's all for the purpose that we who hope in Christ might be to the praise of of his glory. Right? So beforehand, God in his wisdom uh, ordered this, uh, decided this, or determined this to be the case. That we would be to the praise of his glory when we place our faith and trust in the one who is ultimately the most glorious. Let's keep going. Number six. Jesus is coming back for his glory. So, 2 Thessalonians, uh, the verse is not on that one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Can I have a volunteer for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10? A lot of reading tonight. Thanks for bearing with me. You guys are doing great. Right. Thanks, Ethan. To be glorified in his saints. That's the purpose for uh, Jesus' coming again. To be glorified in his saints. To be marveled at among all who believe. So, what's God about? Himself. (laughs) 
To put it very plainly, he's about himself. He's for himself. Everything that he does is for the purpose of praising himself. Does that maybe strike you as odd? Right? And probably our natural inclination is to think, wow, that's maybe a little bit selfish. Offensive, maybe. And, you know, we're sitting here, we're trying to make decisions in the context of a God who works all things out to the praise of himself. And, you know, we have to stop and think, are we really okay with that? Are we okay with the fact that, that we are trying to do things that praise one who is all consumed with his own glory? Is he really that vain? It seems kind of blasphemous to say. But that's kind of what it looks like. Everything is for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to God. And this gave pause to one particularly famous TV show host um, who was reminiscing about their time in uh, the Christian faith, um, and they communicate something to this extent. Uh, They were talking about a particular church service where the pastor was uh, preaching on the the characteristics of God. He referenced his omnipotence and his omnipresence. Um, And then he said, and this is a, a quote from that interview, he says, and then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. You know, I was all caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is also jealous? A jealous God is jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit, because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. Right? So why would we want to serve a God who is all about himself? Now, for many of us, we're probably thinking through this in a biblical way, and we can kind of identify where this particular celebrity went wrong. Um, But that's oftentimes how the world views this. Why would we want to serve a God who is all about himself? And the answer is this. Because what better thing could he be about? What better thing could God be about, could be all consumed with, than himself? Listen to how John Piper puts this truth. Uh, As he reflects on the prayer from John 17, um, he kind of puts this in, in in the words of Jesus. He says, If you find your ultimate joy in your most treasured earthly treasure, you'll be disappointed in the end, and I will be dishonored, I being Jesus. Because I am offering myself to you as the all-satisfying beauty and greatness and wisdom and strength and love of the universe. I am what you were made for. And I am telling you that if you see this, if you see me as your supreme treasure, then you don't have to choose between your satisfaction and my glorification. Because in the very act of you being most satisfied in me, I will be most glorified in you. I thought that was very profound. (laughs) That's a very good way to put that. Our satisfaction and the glorification of God does not have to be a mutually exclusive thing. I thought that was a very interesting perspective. You know, God is working everything out for the praise of his own glory, and that is exactly what should be happening. He's the most excellent, he's the most glorious, he's the most beautiful uh, being in or beyond the universe. He's our greatest delight. 
and for him to welcome us into the wonder of who he is should be humbling and also comforting. That such an immense being would welcome us into at least a glimpse of who he is, being all-glorious and all-powerful and the embodiment of what it means to be excellent and pure and beautiful. There is no cost so high that it is not worth exchanging for the wonder of the knowledge of God. That's why Paul can, can talk about it in, this term, in these terms. He can, he can say, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. is because he recognized exactly who it was that he was serving. Who it was he was striving to know. Who it was that he was striving to fear more appropriately each and every day. He knew that it was God who is holy and perfect and sovereign. So, as we think through this, this, this uh, idea of making decisions, every decision we make, we need to understand that it is uh, being made inside of a universe that is absolutely under the control of a sovereign God who is perfect and holy. And that his sovereign power is at work to accomplish one great aim, to showcase the excellence of his glory. And he will accomplish that aim. So now let's kind of answer the antithesis of the question we started with. How does God's great aim of showing off his glory affect our decision making? I know, it was a lot to take in. <laughs> but yeah, so how does, the, how does the glory of God and the fact that he is pursuing his ultimate goal of bringing honor and glory to himself, how does that affect the way that we make decisions? Yeah, Larry. Sure. So it takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it where it needs to be, on God, right? Which means that might include difficulty. Yeah. Other thoughts? Right, right. Yeah, so oftentimes we can be led astray by our own wants and desires, which are kind of perpendicular to the will of God. Uh, and so kind of realigning our desires and our uh, pursuits to be in line with, with what God's goal is, which is his honor and glory. What else? Any other thoughts? Sure. Um, 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it might produce in us a, a desire to be more prayerful as we approach making decisions. Yeah, those are all really great answers. Um, and actually, that, that ties really well into our next uh, kind of point here. Um, and that is man's responsibility in decision making. So we've kind of looked at, at God's sovereignty as an element of his character, and now we have to somehow reconcile our responsibility with that. Um, and I'm going to be upfront. Scripture doesn't explicitly say how this interaction takes place, but we know that it does, and we're very thankful for the fact that it does. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so far, everything we've seen is, is, is biblical, and it's good, and it makes sense. Um, but how exactly do these truths about God's sovereignty line up with a class on making decisions, right? If God is going to do what God's going to do, and he's going to accomplish his goals uh, no matter what, and he's the most perfect and powerful being imaginable, um, then why should we stress about the decisions that we make? If God's completely sovereign and everything's going to happen to his will, according to his will anyways, what's the big deal about the decisions we make? Why can't we just go through life uh, flippantly making decisions here and there and not really thinking or praying about decisions? Well, uh, to put it simply, the Bible tells us we need to care. God's word communicates that we need uh, to consider um, the responsibility that we have been given. So can I have a volunteer read Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 through 37. Matthew chapter 12, yep, verses 36 and 37. Thank you. Yeah, so what Matthew chapter 12 helps us to see is that we are responsible for our actions, right? And the example kind of that's given, the specific area, is our words. uh, And the fact that we are responsible for even uh, the careless words that we speak. So we are responsible for the decisions that we make uh, as it pertains to how we speak, but also to many other areas of our lives. The next one is, we're responsible to glorify God from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Can I have a volunteer to read that? Yeah, Jay. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This one's even more clear than the last one, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever it may be, We are to do it all for God's glory, right? The Bible, again, never fully explains how our responsibility coexists with God's sovereignty. It makes sense that some aspects uh, of our lives within the context of our relationship with an infinite God just don't fit with our finite brains. Um, But the Bible makes the case for both of these elements very pretty forcefully. It's been very clear that that God is completely sovereign, as we've seen from Scripture. And yet, in these two verses, it's also very clear that we are responsible for the decisions that we make. Um, And so, as we we seek to understand all of this, uh, we we need to do so with an element of of humility, recognizing that we're not uh, infinite. We're not 
to the level of God's understanding that we are still human beings and strive to obey Scripture to the best that we can with what we've been given. And the goal of both our work and His, of God's work, is to show off His glory. That is the goal that we do have, uh, that we can pursue with full conviction, right? And so we've, we've kind of seen a, a pretty good summary of what uh, the sovereignty of God is and how it's been shown in Scripture. Um, but what are the implications that this makes for us as we think through the concept of making decisions? And so for the rest of today's class, what we're going to talk about is um, some specific applications of this truth. So the first is that we should be motivated by faithfulness, right? Um, we're, we, we probably have all heard the, the concept of the fact that, that we need to be faithful stewards of what God has given us. Um, and, and so that idea of faithfulness is pretty key as we think through making decisions, Um, You know, we've kind of already touched on it maybe just a little bit, that it's not so much, uh, the goal isn't so much making the right decision so much as it is being faithful uh, to the one who is asking us to be responsible, right? Um, In in the notes that I've been given, there's a little note here that there's going to be a whole class on this idea of being a faithful steward in a couple of weeks. Uh, So to get more on that, you'll have to come back in a couple of weeks. But for now, uh, we can just talk more about that concept of the fact that we are not motivated by results. Uh, I'll give you your blanks here. I'm holding them from you. We're not motivated by results. The world around us makes decisions uh, all the time, and they're very goal-oriented decision-making, right? They, They seek to have specific results, So, for instance, you get in the car so that you can go to the grocery store to get food, right? You exercise so that you can be healthy. You marry so-and-so so so you can have a happy marriage. And the list can go on and on with decisions that we make uh, that are intended to achieve a specific result. Seems pretty normal, right, to think about that uh, with our everyday lives as we need to do this or that. We do things so that we can achieve specific results. But does God need you to go to the grocery store to feed you? I think most of us would probably say no. We recognize the extent of God's power that if we couldn't get to a grocery store, God would provide for our needs, right? He doesn't need us to do that action. Does God need us to exercise to keep us healthy? Well, no. Does God need us to be married for us to be happy? No. And so as we, as we think through the concept of God being this completely sovereign, all-powerful person, it may even seem a little bit silly to think that we have to do anything for anything to be accomplished for the purpose of God's will. God didn't ask anyone to help him as he created the world. He didn't have anybody's help to help him you know, defeat the Egyptian army or to uh, raise Christ from the dead or to make the, the, the persecutor Saul into the apostle Paul. He did that all in his own power, right? Now, we we have to kind of recognize that God's normal way of feeding us is for us to be able to go to the grocery store and get food. And his normal means of keeping us healthy is uh, for us to exercise. But as a Christian, we don't make those decisions uh, in order to secure the results, right? We don't make those decisions in order to gain some sort of uh, result, 
as if anything within this world is within our control in the first place. But our goal, our uh, challenge is to be responsible with the time, the money, and the relationships that we've been given. And so that's that idea of being a faithful steward. And we could even go so far as to suggest that if we find ourselves constantly frustrated and unhappy with the circumstances of our lives, it's probably in part because we've forgotten who it is that we're serving. It's probably because we've forgotten the value, uh, that value isn't found in the results that we achieve, right? Or that we don't achieve. It's how our faithfulness in the decisions uh, that makes uh, the glory of God shine, that points people to the glory of God. So, in other words, our work is valuable mainly because of how it shows God's work in us. So, again, it just it completely takes the focus off of us and puts it onto God, which I think is a really good place to be as a believer. You know, because if we, are, we're, we have a true understanding of who we are as, as sinners, as totally wicked, in desperate need of a Savior, it elevates who God is as we look at the gospel, um, and then it puts in, into proper perspective uh, who we are in relationship to God, um, which then helps us as we think through our responsibility to serve Him. It takes the focus completely off of ourselves because we've been saved by the grace of God. It's nothing that we've done. It point everything, everything, time and time again, points to who God is and what he's done and takes the focus completely off of us. Um, I was just reading Colossians 1, and uh, at the end of that, Paul is talking about how he is striving to present everyone mature in Christ. He's, he's striving to teach and to uh, build up faithful believers, but he, he recognizes even there that it's the work of God in him that's powerfully working. It's nothing about him. And it's just time and time again, the focus is taken off of us and put on to God. And so a person who's motivated by results, who doesn't have that, that God-centered focus, is going to live in constant frustration because if value is found through what they're able to produce or accomplish or to get done then they will always have to produce. It's a never-ending cycle. They're always going to have to be doing things and accomplishing things uh, to feel joy. And I'm sure we all have heard stories of those, those individuals who uh, struck it rich somehow and became a billionaire, and, well, that didn't really satisfy them, so they pursued a career or a job, and they got to the top of that job, and, well, they still felt empty, and so they pursued accumulation of things, and, and even that didn't satisfy their emptiness, right? And it was just thing after thing after thing that, that they wanted or felt they needed to f- have some sort of joy or fulfillment, and it's just an empty cycle of, of pursuit and emptiness and pursuit and emptiness. It can sounds very wearisome as we, as we talk about it. But a person who is motivated instead by faithfulness will understand that regardless of the situation they find themselves in, whether they are um, at the bottom of the corporate ladder or at the top, whether they're single or married or widowed, or if they're empty nesters or just starting a family or or whatever it is, a person who is motivated by faithfulness doesn't find their joy in their circumstances. Instead, uh, they use their circumstances as a means to display uh, the joy that they have in Christ. But again, here's a note. You're going to get more on that in a couple of weeks. 
So we'll move on for now. So the second kind of application is the fact that we're motivated by meaning. God's sovereignty gives meaning to our decisions in a couple of ways, right? So everything has a created order. Everything has value and purpose because it's been ordained by God. It's been appointed by a sovereign creator who never does anything in vain. And so we should be people who understand and embrace everything from uh, saving a life to stubbing a toe has meaning. Like every, even the minutest of details has meaning. So it has meaning for what we do. It has meaning for what we do. God allows nothing to happen that doesn't contribute to his grand narrative of meaning. Right? So even, even the, uh, what we might perceive as bad decisions we make are still being used by God to promote his ultimate goal. Everything that happens, happens for a purpose. Uh, because our universe is governed by that ultimate sovereign God. And praise God because he's good. And the purpose behind everything that he allows and, and has determined beforehand is also good. It's in perfect alignment with his character. God's sovereignty gives meaning for how we do what we do. That's the next blank there. And as probably most of us can attest, life is full of disappointments. Moses wrote this, uh, most likely at the end of his long life. He says this, The years of your life are 70, or, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. That's from Psalm 90, verse 10. It's very reminiscent of, of Ecclesiastes, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It's vanity of vanities. We struggle and toil all day long, and, and yet, what's the point kind of vibe, right? And if you get to the end of your life, and all you see around you is failure and wreckage, has it been a waste? Right? If, if, if that's all that you see, it might be tempting to think that it is all a waste. And I'm sure that's probably what Moses thought at the end of his long life when the people were grumbling and wandering around in the wilderness. I've raised my kids, but they've made a mess of their lives. I've poured myself into my company, and it went under. I've lived for my marriage, and now my spouse is dead. Are memories really all that I have? In a universe governed by a sovereign God, the answer is a resounding no. That's not all that we have. God is accomplishing his purpose not simply by the results of what you do, but by the work, but by your work, excuse me, and what it says about him. Were you faithful in raising those kids? Faithful in your job? Did your marriage showcase the beauty of the gospel? Then your life has been a giant billboard advertising the faithfulness of our God, who is faithful. And no matter what you have left in your hands at the end of your life, no matter what that might be, your life can be a rich display of the character and nature of God. It's rich with meaning if it's contributed to God's ultimate aim for the universe, which is his honor, and glory, and its proclamation.
So kind of continuing with this theme, God gives meaning to the mundane. As we think through uh, this wonderful display of a sovereign and holy and perfect and good God, um, we see that he gives meaning even to the mundane. So Matthew chapter 10 uh, talks about this. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care? And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So we, we alluded to this already, but it just shows the magnificence of God's care and faithfulness to us. So that even the most mundane of decisions um, have meaning now because God cares so much for us. Right? So maybe you found yourself in this scenario recently, driving around for 16 minutes before you found a parking spot in the morning. Before you could start your day, you couldn't find a place to park. God is sovereign over that. Maybe you didn't drive. Maybe you walked to church. Did you trip on an uneven sidewalk and scrape a knee? God is sovereign over that. Did your washing machine or dryer break down? God is sovereign over that. Nothing is too small to have purpose. Nothing happens by chance in this life. The next one here, God gives meaning to all of our relationships. So a little bit more significant than the mundane things of life. So God says this in Acts, Paul says this in Acts 26 through 27 in chapter 17. He says, from one man... He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And this verse really has the potential to display the awesomeness of God, right? If, we're, if we understand who God is, this verse is really significant. Consider how many people there are in this class. Uh, let's see. We got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, somewhere in there. Um, that's 36 or 37 people who all have a unique story to tell. Right? We're all, we were all born at different times to different families, different states, maybe even different countries. Fun fact, my mom was born in Germany. She was born on a, a military base, so she's not German. But fun fact. We've all participated in very event, various events of our lives that have all happened to us um, through the course of our existence, right? We've all stubbed toes. We've all missed appointments or had job transfers um, all of it has brought each and every one of us here in this moment today, right? Consider the number of events added together in all of our lives that have comprised to bring us together today in this moment. It's immense. It's got to be a huge number. So what does all that have to do with relationships? 
why do we have the neighbors that we have? Why are we sitting next to the person that we're sitting next to? Why do we have the coworkers we currently have? Why will we run into seemingly random people throughout the week? Because God has placed all of us in each other's lives, whether we're talking about close friends or encounters with strangers. He has put us here so that we would all seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's never been far from us. So consider how that should affect the conversation that you have with the driver of your next Uber or taxi ride. Consider what that means for you when you interact with your neighbors at home or your coworkers in the workplace. Interesting. Oh, is it? Okay. Well, we'll keep pushing on here, and we can add that Amber Alert to our prayer list at the end uh, when we break off into groups. So what does all this have to do with relationships, right? Uh, We all have those interactions with people. Uh, We all have um, been given those specific relationships for a reason, right? And there's... No such thing as chance. Um, Every single relationship, every single person that we run into, all of them have been sovereignly placed in our lives by God. Everything has happened for a reason. So thirdly here, God gives meaning to our work. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 and 7. Can I have a a volunteer to read Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 and 7? Thank you. I'm going to pull it up here, too, because I don't have it printed in my notes. Okay, yeah. So it's in the realm of our work that the image of God in man reflects most clearly God as creator, right? And that's an interesting concept to think through. So in Genesis 1, God creates the universe, And then proceeds to take the land that was formless and void and shape it into a land that is inhabitable by uh, mankind. And then he created man to inhabit that land uh, and work the land. So work is basic uh, to our functions as humans, right? Uh, Greg Gilbert in his book, The Gospel at Work, says this. One way or another, your job somehow involves the work of bringing beauty uh, out of ugliness, order out of chaos. Perhaps uh, unassembled pieces are pulled together to make a a widget used to create a product that people use. Or natural products are identified, isolated, and harvested to create something new. Sickness is treated, injustice is rectified, broken windows are repaired, cracked sidewalks are fixed. 
right? So, so not only do we find meaning uh, in the reflection of God's image um, in the creative aspect of our work, right, as we um, reflect his character in that way, but we also find meaning in the way that God uses our jobs to sharpen us, to make us more like Christ. So think, think of God's sovereignty in bringing Jacob to work for Laban. He took advantage of Jacob for 14 years, yet it wasn't without purpose. Not only was God sovereignly uh, orchestrating the, not obstructing, that would have been bad, it wasn't obstructing the lineage, he was orchestrating the lineage of Jesus, uh, he was also sharpening Jacob through the process, right? So, so I think each and every one of us have probably been in situations that we didn't like, that were uncomfortable or that were hard for us, right? But when was the last time that we, we stopped and thought about the fact that God is sovereign, so that means that the situation that I'm in is purposeful, and how might that purpose be working itself out for my sanctification, for his honor and glory, right? It's an interesting thought process. You know, Paul reminds us in Ephesians, whether our work is difficult or enjoyable, it is done unto God, right? And we even saw that earlier with whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. God is our boss. And whatever workplace we're in, at home, McDonald's, or some executive mansion somewhere, is, God, uh, is, is used, those jobs are used by God to shape us and change us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So praise God that we serve a sovereign God because those moments are being worked out for our growth to become more like Jesus. So we've already talked about Ecclesiastes once, but this is the end of the book. Um, And it seems to cry out uh, this idea, right? So he says, meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful because all is ordered by an eternal, sovereign, and purposeful God, right? That's kind of the conclusion to that book of Ecclesiastes, which started with with this, you know, what is the end of man? Like, what's the purpose, right? And yet the conclusion is, is this resting in the sovereignty of God, right? Okay. So there's one final implication that we're going to talk about this evening, and then we'll get to our conclusion here. Um, oh, yeah, okay. So rest in, the, in God's sovereignty. So as we grow in our reverence for God's sovereignty and goodness, we will not live in fear of ruining God's will or thwarting his purposes. Instead, we will want to be faithful to him as a good steward of his resources. We will seek to make decisions that glorify him and move forward with restful confidence in his sovereignty. Right? Making decisions can be one of the most... uh, anxious things in our lives, right? Um, It's not easy for all of us to make uh, decisions. But the character and nature of God, his sovereignty and the fact that he is in control of every element of our lives means that we can rest in his control as we seek to responsibly make decisions. We care about the decisions we make, not because we think a bad decision will somehow remove us from God's will or thwart his purposes, but because we want to be responsible, right? Which would probably produce more prayer. 
We want to be responsible because that's what it looks like to be a faithful steward, and faithfulness brings glory to God. So when you have a hard decision to make, do your best to make it well in a way that pleases God, and then sit back and relax and enjoy the unwavering, unstoppable, uncompromising power of your good and sovereign God to work out all the things according to the counsel of his will, and, and, and that's what restful decision-making is. So. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.